This is Jay Watts from Merely Human Ministries. Welcome to the Human Things Podcast, Episode 9. Hey, welcome to the Human Things Podcast 2.0. This is Jay Watts of Merely Human Ministries. If you like the content, please subscribe. We have a subscribe thing somewhere in this area that is going to be there. Please hit subscribe. If you like the content, also visit us at merelyhumanministries.org and contribute to the effort to produce more material like this. Today, we're going to have a, this is the beginning of a two-parter. We have uh, Scott Klusendorf coming on. I've actually already recorded the episode with Scott Klusendorf, but he and I talked quite a bit about a far, about a broad range of things in his three things subject matter. So we're going to split this into two episodes. Uh, so today will be episode one, and we'll try to find a reasonable place within that to stop. And then episode two, we will also break out that that interview on its own and have that video stand alone. So that if anybody wants to watch the whole interview un, unbroken, we can do that as well. So we're going to provide that in multiple formats. We're going to be changing a lot of things, not changing a lot of things. <clears throat> we're committed to a long form format for Human Things 2.0. I invite guests on and I tell them we're not in any hurry. We want to talk about things for as long as you want to talk about them. And in any issue that we discuss, we want the opportunity to be able to dive as deep as necessary to find hopefully some intelligent dialogue on the discussion. And so we're not in a hurry. That's, that's part of the DNA, so to speak, of this podcast endeavor is that it is meant to to, to replicate the idea of sitting around and talking for a long time about things like we do after talks, after presentations, after events. So out of that commitment, we will never do our best to be short. That's just not who and what we are. But what we are going to do is going to have sections of each one of these posted online. So we're going to, now that we have what look like 10 episodes in the can, and we're going to go back and have shorter versions. We're going to have to break out some of the interviews. We're going to break out sections or segments or excerpts from the interviews. We're going to have shorter videos where if we if somebody said something particularly insightful, we're going to be able to put that on as well. So that that is the, the big picture of what we're trying to accomplish here. Long form will be will always be the mothership. We are committed to a long form podcast. We are going to talk slowly about a lot of things, take our time, make sure we cover things well, give opportunity to think and, and let things marinate as we discuss them, give us a chance to, to wind our way through conversations, make it, to, it's, relationships are important to us. And, and so that the people that we're talking to, we're in relationship with as well. Uh, but we are going to honor the brevity of our current culture, and we're going to try to to go and find more brief delivery systems for some of the material that we we have produced so far. Uh, on the side, I, I, I want to, I'm going to come back to something that I talked. It's not lost on me that I've got uh, Darth Tater back there, uh, my Mr. Potato Head with Darth Vader on the shelf behind me. I, I made a claim on an earlier episode that I think on evaluation, I'm, I, I am what you call a Star Wars fan, I recognize the flaws in Star Wars and, and, and I don't love everything that's produced that has the Star Wars brand on it, but I am a Star Wars fan. I enjoy the Star Wars universe, but I would say that there was a point where I was trying to reflect on why I liked some elements of Star Wars better than others, particularly I'm, I'm obviously from the time that I grew up, I was a, I mean, the first Star Wars came out when I was six years old. So I was what six, nine and, 12 
when the first three movies came out. And so they're particularly important to me as far as a cinematic experience that I loved. And so then the sequels came out, the prequels came out. And as a Star Wars guy, I enjoyed lightsabers and Jedi Knights. But there was something missing from the prequels for me that wasn't there in the that was there in the original that wasn't there in the prequels. It was just something not, and I know that there's a generation of people who grew up with the prequels and that star Wars for them and everything else doesn't quite feel like star Wars the same way that those two. And then let's get past, I mean, some, some of the regrettable dialogue and that horrible, eternal weird date scene and the, an attack of the clones and, and just focus on the overall star Wars feel of it. And I'm not going to revisit midichlorians because I've already expressed my hatred of that. And we're not going to bang on Jar Jar Binks because there's been some redemption lately for the actor that played Jar Jar Binks. Uh, so, so what I wanted to do is focus on something that I noticed, though. So I loved the original series. And then the the prequels, I liked it, but it just didn't do the same thing for me. And, and here's where I started to notice. There was two things. When The Force Awakens came out and when Rogue One came out and... This, this, this started to crystallize a thought for me. The Star Wars universe is at its best when you have both Darth Vader and Han Solo in a movie. That to me is, for me, that's peak Star Wars. First of all, I think Darth Vader is, is one of the greatest movie villains of all time. The, act, the fact that it becomes a redemption story for Vader, I think... We, we, we feel good about Vader at the very end, which is great. It's a great story. I love it. I, and I love the arc of the, the Anakin Skywalker story. I, as I said, when we were talking, when I was watching the, and if you haven't seen them and I'm going to be spoiling things for you, I don't care. You know, if you don't want to, you don't want Star Wars spoiled for you, then you're going to have to just leave the social media altogether. People talk about Star Wars a lot. The, the redemption arc of characters like Kylo Ren and the sequel trilogy are like Anakin Skywalker over the first six, four uh, storylines. It's a great storyline. It has to be a redemption that ends almost immediately. They don't deserve a happily ever after. And the more you go back and see them, some adding Darth Vader to, to some of those stories and some of the horrible things he's capable of doing, you realize just how evil he was, but he's a great villain. One of the greatest villains ever. I remember dreading him as a kid. I remember that sense of this Deep, that James Earl Jones voice, the breathing, the darkness, the power that, that came with him, the sense that you have to be very careful around him. I, that's one of my favorite things about bad guys. I was actually just talking about this with my son yesterday. We we're discussing cinematic experiences where they have made characters feel dangerous. And I think Martin Scorsese does actually a pretty good job of this. If you can stomach his movies, some I know some people probably have trouble because they're brutal and vulgar and I don't like all of them, but there have been characters that he's created uh, that, that feel that Tommy from Goodfellas just feels dangerous when he's around. He there's, you just don't know what he's going to do. He's willing. He may kill somebody at any given moment. Butcher and gangs of New York played by Daniel day Lewis felt the same way to me. He's terrifying. He, in the sense that he's, he's so violence is so part of his nature that you're never safe when he's around. I, I remember that dread first time I saw Silence of the Lambs that even though Hannibal Lecter is behind plexiglass and there's no way he should be able to hurt you, 
He's terrifying. And when, when they tell Clarice Starling as she's walking down the hallway not to approach the glass, and then she gets there and he's standing there in his, his perfectly clean room, his perfect posture. Anthony Hopkins says Hannibal Lecter in the middle of the room. And he, he tells her to get closer and she's coming close. He's like, closer? He keeps calling her. I, I dreaded that. I mean, I, I remember watching that thinking, don't go close to They warned you, don't get closer to the glass. This is so, there's something terrifyingly dangerous about this man that you just never feel safe when he's on the screen. There's always a sense that he's ahead of you. I felt that way about Darth Vader as a kid. There was a sense that you just weren't going to beat Vader. He knew what you were up to. You couldn't get past him. You didn't want to be the bearer of bad news to him. Nobody wanted to have to talk to Vader. He was ruthless. He was terrifying and he was powerful and he had knowledge. That's one of the things that I always think when I think about great villains, I think about knowledge. Villains tend to tend to know great villains tend to know more about what's going on than the people trying to stop them. If you look at them and they're, they're, it's not just grounded in power. Oftentimes it's just grounded in knowledge. They just know they're ahead of you. They're one step ahead of the, the protagonist all the time. Vader was always ahead of everybody. One step ahead of everybody all of the time. Terrifying. So Vader is this villain that looms over the first three movies. Then you get to the, the prequels and Anakin Skywalker is now what's going to become Vader, but you don't have Vader. Palpatine's great, but he, he sort of looms in the dark. I thought Darth Maul was kind of, was a terrifying, I love Darth Maul. I thought he was great. They got rid of him in the first episode, but you never had that full Vader feel. I just feel like Palpatine, as great as he was, he wasn't that menacing, looming that Vader was. Vader felt more dangerous. Palpatine felt more calculated. He was always operating in the back, but Vader would kill you at any, he'd kill anybody. So I love Vader. I think Vader's the greatest. Star Wars is at its best when Vader's there, but he's also at his best when Han Solo was there. Those two together made the Star Wars universe more interesting. So not only did the, the prequels lack Vader, even though it had Palpatine, there's still some menace there, but it really lacked Han Solo. Han Solo, I think Harrison Ford is one of the great charismatic actors of all time. He is, nobody plays that sort of flippant cockiness better than he did in his heyday. And, and he was funny and he was light and he didn't care about all of the Jedi stuff. He actually was dismissive about it and thought it was stupid. And there was something about having this guy that was so self-absorbed in the middle of all of this seriousness that just isn't there when he's not there. That without Harrison Ford playing Han Solo, you're just missing something wonderful about the Star Wars universe. And when the two of them are together, that's when for me, so that's why I actually like Force Awakens. I know a lot of people think it's fan service, but one of the things that I really enjoy about it is you got Han and Chewie. And Han and Chewie are awesome. I, 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 got, I got what I wanted. I wanted to see Han and Chewie. I think they're fun. I think they're a funny pairing. Um, I, I even like the Han Solo movie. I think it was, it came out at a bad time, but I even enjoyed that. He's not, nobody's Harrison Ford. Nobody's Harrison Ford. Harrison Ford is Han Solo and nobody can ever be Harrison Ford. And so there's something you have to sort of embrace about the idea that any Han Solo after Harrison Ford is going to be bad. I have surprisingly strong opinions about who my version of a character is, right? Harrison Ford is Han Solo, period. That's who Han Solo is. Everything that you try to do to keep Han Solo alive misses the fact that Han Solo and Harrison Ford are inseparable from each other. He is just the, the energy, the living energy of Han Solo. Uh, by the way, I have surprisingly strong feelings about who Gomez at Raul Julia is my Gomez Adams. 
uh, Raul and Julia, you may want to go old school and go back to the TV show and Ferris Bueller's dad uh, was, was no, Raul Julia to me is peak Gomez Adams when you're talking about the Adams family. So, so that to me was something that I came to believe that what's missing from a lot of Star Wars is Han Solo and Darth Vader. And the more you can put Darth Vader in, the better I feel about what you're doing. For you want to talk about the the Obi-Wan, the the Kenobi, the the streaming. When Vader was on, I was all in, man. I loved the Vader stuff. It drags without him. The last few minutes of Rogue One, when Vader walks down that hallway, is just some of the greatest Star Wars moments ever in history. That's that's old school. That's like reclaiming the evil Vader and having him there again, this terrifying presence, this force that is unleashed on the universe. It's just, you need Vader and you need Solo for it to be peak. And then when you have either one of those by themselves, it still makes everything better. They just make everything that they're a part of better. So that's my pointless diversion for the day. I hope you enjoyed the ramblings of a Han Solo, Darth Vader fan, right? We'll get more. We'll, we'll, and that's Darth Tater behind me. One of my favorite things in my, I used to have, I have toys that people give me over the years. I've had Darth Tater forever. I love that Darth Tater thing. He's been around for a long time. I also got a Mr. Potato Head daredevil back there. Uh, and I used to have a, a Godzilla that screamed, like had the legitimate Godzilla thing. I wish I still had that. It died sooner or later, but I love the, like the screen, like the Godzilla scream, that distinct scream. You press a button on him and he would do that. It was awesome. All right. I want to talk about one more thing before we bring on Scott. And it is, I talk about a lot of objections that we get a lot. And online, you get the burning research lab. It's some form of it a lot. And, and the burning research lab leads into my discussion with Scott very well. So that's why I wanted to cover it because we do discuss elements of, of things that go with this argument. But what, what fascinates me is that people will post some form of the burning research lab on TikTok on Twitter, uh, through all the social media. It's oftentimes young people, oftentimes people in college age, and they, they think that they're coming up with this new, or it's a new argument, and they're very excited about it. It's been around for a very, very long time. And so here, here's how it goes, if you're unfamiliar with it. The Burning Research Lab goes like this, uh, or some form of it. Imagine that we have a research lab that catches on fire. And over here on this table, you have a Petri dish. Let's say there's a hundred embryos in that Petri dish. And then let's say over here on this side, you have a two-year-old child and you have the ability to save either that Petri dish with a hundred embryos in it or this child over here. And that's it. You have to make a decision right now in that burning research lab. Are you going to save the hundred embryos, or are you going to save the single two-year-old child? And the argument goes something like this. If you say that you're going to save that two-year-old child, which almost everybody I've ever talked to says they're going to do, then you are demonstrating that you do not believe those embryos are the same as that two-year-old child. You yourself, as the pro-life advocate, believe that two-year-old child is more valuable than those embryos. And so you're a hypocrite for going around trying to force women to have babies 
when you believe that embryos are not the same as human beings, because every reasonable person will save the two-year-old over a hundred embryos. That's a hundred human lives over there. A hundred human lives that you say that you believe are as valuable as that two-year-old right there. And yet when circumstances presented themselves that forced you to choose between the two, you choose the two-year-old because you understand the two-year-old has more value because you understand there's a greater evil in allowing that two-year-old to die in order to save a hundred embryos that just aren't as valuable as that two-year-old. So that's the argument. It's meant to demonstrate the hypocrisy of the pro-life advocate. Then not even we think they're as valuable as two-year-olds. It's just something that we say for whatever reason, we're honestly mistaken. We want to control women, uh, whatever. So, Here's the problem with that. The first problem of it is it does nothing to address the objective nature of the life over there in those Petri, those hundred embryos in that Petri dish. It addresses me as a pro-life advocate. So I could concede that I'm a hypocrite. I could concede that I don't believe that they're of equal value, but that doesn't demonstrate they're not of equal value. It just demonstrates something about me as a pro-life advocate. If you are able to demonstrate that I'm a flawed human being, it doesn't make my arguments less either valid or sound. Either one of those things. That doesn't make my argument any less compelling for the humanity of the unborn. It just means that Jay might be a hypocrite. Jay might be a deeply flawed individual, and I'll let you in on a secret. I am a deeply flawed individual. And I'm sure that I have all sorts of hypocrisies off the top of my head. I can't think of what they are right now, but you know, probably spend enough time with me. You'll find them. So the question isn't, is Jay a hypocrite? The question isn't, does Jay genuinely believe the pro-life position? The question is, what are they? What are those embryos? Are they one of us or are they not one of us? That's the question that has to be answered. If you attack me, that's called ad hominem. It's to the man. You're saying Jay is deeply flawed and therefore the pro-life position does not hold. Jay can be deeply flawed and an honest evaluation of the pro-life position is that it holds because it demonstrates the humanity of the embryos in spite of the fact that Jay doesn't treat them as if they're morally valuable in the same way as that two-year-old. Here's another problem with it. Not only does it fail to address the central question, which is objectively, what are those embryos? Are they one of us or are they not? And where do our moral values or considerations, duties and obligations for other human lives come? Do we, do we owe a duty and obligation to all human life or do we just owe it to human life that's capable of doing or performing some particular capacities or, or, or expressing particular abilities? I think the safest thing we could possibly do is respect all human life. But if you want to argue against that, you can't argue against it by saying Jay's a hypocrite because he is. That doesn't affect the argument. The next question is it doesn't prove what they claim to prove, right? For example, if I've told audiences before, I've spoken in front of audiences, you know, big hundred, couple hundred people. I said, if I were talking in this room right now and all of a sudden a fire broke out and it were all of you people out there and it were my three kids over there, and I knew I had the ability to save either you or them. I'm not capable of watching my kids burn to death. So I'm going to save them. 
That does not mean you're not human. It doesn't mean you have the same value, that you don't have the same value as my kids. It doesn't mean that I have no fewer moral obligations and duties to you than I have to any other human being. It means that when push comes to shove, Jay has an emotional attachment to his children that he doesn't have to a room full of 100 listeners. And he is going to act in accordance with that emotional attachment to his kids. He is going to protect his kids. That's just who Jay is. That's what I'm going to do. That doesn't mean you're not human. And it doesn't mean that they're more valuable. It just means they mean more to me. And that doesn't demonstrate anything of importance when it comes to evaluating the human life. Because in this scenario, what you're talking about is who does Jay save? Who does Jay save when given the option? Jay's not intentionally, I'm not intentionally killing anyone. I'm not trying to destroy life. I'm not intending for any life to end. I have an opportunity to save some life. And yes, Jay's prejudices will come into that. I will save the person closest to me, the people that I love the most. Just like if I have a two-year-old child here and I have the Petri dish over there, and if I have an emotional attachment to that two-year-old that I don't have those embryos in a Petri dish and I save that two-year-old, I choose to save that two-year-old, I'm not destroying the embryos. The fire is destroying the embryos. I'm saving the two-year-old. Who I choose to save is a different question of who I choose to destroy. Those are two entirely different questions, which is another way that this issue, that this analogy fails. Another question is, my, those prejudices, again, demonstrating nothing about the, let's move it. Frank Beckwith has talked about this. Let's say that instead of a burning research lab, it's a burning barn in 1857 Georgia. And I am a white man. And over there is a little blonde white girl with ringlets in her hair. And over there on that side, over there, I'm getting into character, I guess, from Georgia, over there, over there are five slaves. Now, if I am on that plantation in 1857, Georgia, I probably have a low view of the value of slaves as human beings and a high view of the value of that little blonde girl. And so if I save choose to save that blonde girl and let those slaves die. It doesn't mean those slaves weren't human beings that have value. It means that I, in choosing to save one life over another, have made my evaluation based on my own prejudices or my own affections, my own predilections. It just is something about me. It is entirely different, separate from the question of the value of that life that I didn't save. So, the first question is, there's a difference between saving and killing. The second one is that it, it says nothing about the value of the life and, and recognizing that any particular agent act making moral decisions is going to do so from a particular frame of reference and that, that frame of reference may be corrupted. And that doesn't address the overall issue at all. The question is, what are the unborn? The question is, what are those embryos? Are those embryos, those hundred embryos, human beings? And just because Jay chooses not to save them doesn't mean that the researcher can choose to use them as a resource to help other human beings. It doesn't mean that we can take other human, nascent human life and destroy it for the sake of the other human, to benefit other human beings. It's a terrible way to look at human value. And it certainly, as it comes down to pregnancy and abortion, doesn't mean that just because I wouldn't save embryos 
you should be free to intentionally destroy, destroy your offspring before they're born because you have dreams, hopes, aspirations, or just plans for next week that you don't want to be affected. What it means is that this is a terrible way to dismiss the pro-life view. It's, a, it's an argument that on its merit, the only merit on its, on its face, the only merit it brings to this discussion is embarrassing the pro-lifer. It might do that. I don't think that it does. I, I think that there, I think in addition to the idea that I may just have prejudices towards a two-year-old versus a vial of 100 embryos, that I may balance out additional evils that will happen in the death of that two-year-old that won't happen in the death of those embryos. I may look at both of them and say, that's true that there's 100 valuable human lives over here and that there's only one over here. But what's also true is that when they burn to death in this fire, they will die but they won't know that they died. And that if I leave this two-year-old, she will be a two-year-old child left abandoned and frightened and terrified and consigned or condemned to the one of the worst imaginable deaths. And that she will know it and feel it. And those are additional evils that I may take into consideration. Even if I don't know that two-year-old, even if I don't like them, which by the way, there are a lot of two-year-olds I'm not particularly fond of. And if that's one of them, JD looked at me kind of strange. You're the same way. You're, you, all of us have been somewhere and some, some kid that's been raised by parents that have taught them that they're a prince or a princess and that they can do whatever. All, even at that age, are so indulged that they operate on that, that, that frame of reference of the world around them. They bug you, right? It's like, that's, that's just, I don't, right? I don't, I don't like, I, the whole idea that I, when I, before I had my own kids, I wouldn't have said I was the, a guy that liked kids that much anyway. I mean, I love my kids and they, they made me like other kids more. And, and I was able, but I, I do find by the way, now that my kids are in college and one of them's a teenager that my, my adoration for that young age is, is drifting a bit back towards where it used to be. And that doesn't mean that I get mad when people have their kids out in public or anything. Cause I, I love kids in the sense that we need them. It's just that I don't always enjoy the experience of being around kids in this culture today. Uh, it's just not always my favorite thing in the world, right? So you, if they, if there's a place where kids ought to be, I, I act accordingly. Okay, well maybe I won't go hang out with those kids. Um, I'll find someplace else to be. So even if I feel that way about kids, let's say I hate kids, I don't. But let's say I did, I could still look at that two-year-old and say, I don't like you, but oh my gosh, I'm not going to leave you here to die a painful, fiery death alone and abandoned by the rest of humanity so that I can prove a point about how I feel about embryos. There's additional evils in the death of that two-year-old that's going to burn that exists that may be taken into consideration. So I don't, I'm not even 100% sure that this thought experience says something horrible about me or any other pro-lifer other than the fact that, that this is a much more complicated issue than the people who are offering it as a simple refutation of the pro-life position think. It may have some rhetorical force for particularly thoughtless audiences, uh, it goes back to one of those audio, those, those re objections that I think will do more to re will resonate more with the people who are already convinced that you're right. For people who are already predisposed to think that pro-life people are hypocrites, they're going to hear that and say, yeah, yeah, hypocrites. Exactly. But for anybody who's trying to think these things through and you can offer up, First of all, it's an ad hominem. It's attacking the person, not the argument. Second of all, there's a difference between choosing to save a life and choosing to destroy it. Third of all, it's normal for human beings to have greater commitments and obligations and duties, particularly more feelings and affections towards one set of human beings versus another. Every one of us has people they just like more than someone else. That's not abnormal. And we may have 
a prejudice towards saving them versus saving others because of that feeling of affection for them that we don't have for someone else. And I think a father has natural obligations and duties to their kids that ought to be felt beyond. I think I have an obligation to my kids. I think I exist to protect those kids. That's part of the reason I'm here is to steward their life and to get them to a place where they can replace me and be the generation that comes after us. And, and, and then they've been, and we're already getting to that point. I feel like in our lives, because of that, I feel like strong obligation or duty or commitment to them. I think that the road, the book by Cormac McCarthy works because as awful as that world is, that they find themselves in. If you haven't read the road, I think it's a great book. It's a grim book. It's a horrifying book, but it's a great book. And one of the things that's great about it is that you have a world, a universe that's imagined by Cormac McCarthy where there is no reason any longer for us to have moral commitments to each other based on social contract. All social contracts have broken down. We have no reason any longer to have utility. There's no utility in treating other people well. As a matter of fact, utility is most often served in that world by being brutal with your fellow man. And yet you have a father shepherding his son through that world and trying as best he can to pass on to him some value of what it means to be a human, how human beings ought to treat each other. So it's just a beautiful story in that regard because we recognize that a father has extraordinary duties and obligations to their kids. And there's a father doing everything he can to live up to those extraordinary duties and responsibilities in the middle of a horrifyingly terrifying world that, that Cormac McCarthy has built in the road. Uh, so I don't even think it's hypocritical for me to say that I may have obligations and duties and responsibilities to that I feel to my kids that I would save them over you. And to the same degree then, I think that, that it may even fail as an indictment against pro-lifers as inconsistent. But even if it does succeed, even if it does succeed as making me inconsistent, it doesn't succeed in arguing that the, those embryos are not human in the same way that you and I are. They don't have important moral worth. And that even if we were some justification in saving the two-year-old versus them, it doesn't provide you then, by extension, justification to use them as a resource or destroy them. Those are different things. Okay, so we're going to bring on Scott now. And this will be part one. We will find a spot in here to stop it. But Scott is coming on to share his three things. And I am, I am so grateful that Scott has agreed to join us. And he will let us know his three things directly. Welcoming Scott Klusendorf to our Three Things segment this week. Scott Klusendorf is the president and founder of Life Training Institute. By my mind, the single greatest communicator of the pro-life view working today. Uh, he's been my mentor, my friend. I'm honored to have him on the show, and he's going to share with us three things that are important for the audience, our pro-life audience, to know today. Jay, good to be with you. Oh, oh thank you for joining us. Glad to do it. So here are my three things. I'm just going to lay them out there on the table and then we'll dive in. Outstanding. First idea, prudence is not compromise. Second idea, inconsistency is not refutation. Third idea, human rights require human beings. And I think all three of these ideas are in play right now in the culture and pro-lifers need to be clear on both of those, or all three of those concepts. And if we're not, we're going to miss it at the worldview level. Absolutely. So let's take that first one, that prudence is not compromise. There are two uh, battlefronts going on within the pro-life movement right now, and both of them potentially are damaging to our efforts to save children. The first civil war battle we're having is on our left flank with people who say we got to be whole life. If we're not 
taking on every life issue under the sun. We're not being pro-life and therefore we're inconsistent and uh, our credibility goes out the window. We're also getting attacked on our right flank from people like abolitionists and others who say that unless we uh, prosecute women for murder, our entire case collapses biblically and intellectually. And both those ideas are deeply problematic to our side, but I wanna focus on the attack that's coming from our right flank, the idea that if we're prudent in our legislation proposals, we're somehow being compromised. And I don't believe that for a moment. The argument is going that if you don't support prosecuting women for murder, if abortion is outlawed, then you have no biblical ground to stand on. And the only reason you're doing that is because you want to continue to profit from abortion as a pro-life advocate, figure that out. Yeah. Or, or uh, they say you're just willing to provide legal cover for murderers. What they totally ignore is that we may have moral and prudential reasons for not wanting to push prosecution at this point. And those reasons need to be answered, not merely dismissed as being compromised. For example, in order to prove that you've got a woman that deserves to be prosecuted for murder, for abortion, if you're going to prove a criminal conspiracy here, you have to prove that there's been what we call a meeting of the minds. And you know what that is, Jay, but a lot of people don't. That means you have to prove in court of law in front of a jury that her understanding of the Abortion Act matches exactly the doctor's understanding of the act. And if they don't match, the whole case gets thrown out, including the case against the abortionist who did the abortion. So recognizing that that is a high hurdle that almost no prosecutor is gonna be able to overcome, pro-lifers have historically prosecuted the abortionist, but not the woman the way they would prosecute the doctor. And some people think that's inconsistent and that means we're not biblical or moral because we won't prosecute her for murder but I'm not persuaded by that at all. And the reason is not only for the meeting of the minds uh, problem, but think about it culturally for a moment. Jay, since the Dobbs decision back in June of last year, pro-lifers have lost every yeah. single time abortion has been put to the public for a vote. And by the way, we just lost another one yep. yesterday in uh, Wisconsin, Wisconsin, where a pro-abortion judge got the seat and that's gonna tip that court now to where it's going to be promoting abortion wholesale. And when we come in and say, hey, we're going to push a bill that says we're going to prosecute women for murder, when the culture already believes we hate women and want them to die, in what possible world is that a good bill to put forward? Set aside the moral conditions for a moment, just think prudentially. Is yep. it a good idea to convince, to, you know, further convince the culture we hate women and want them to die? and we're out to punish them, isn't our goal to stop abortion? If we can stop abortion by protecting the unborn legally, why are we doing something that just reinforces the culture's myth that we want women to die? And the sad reality is a lot of these abolitionists and others on our right flank are pushing a bill that they're just giddy about. I'm just shocked at how happy they are that they're gonna have the prospect of prosecuting women for murder. I, I don't know what they're thinking in terms of what world they're operating in that this is going to help save babies. Yeah. It's not going to help save babies. Then you've got another problem. Juries, judges, and prosecutors, just because the law says abortion is murder, doesn't mean they're going to prosecute women no. that way. And 
you're not going to get convictions on this. They're going to rightly say, wait a minute, for 50 plus years, women have been told that abortion is a positive good, legally protected, a constitutional right. And now you're going to assume that they're going to just start thinking rightly about this. That's crazy to say that we're going to prosecute a woman for premeditated murder when everything in the culture has told her abortion's a good thing. And by the way, our churches have largely been silent, so they haven't helped either. Uh, and now we're going to just turn right around and prosecute women for murder. That's just crazy. And jur jurors are going to say, no way. Our job should be to go after the source. Let's go get the guy who's doing the abortion and prosecute him. He knows what he's doing. Now, I've had people push back and say, women know exactly what they're doing. There has been a meeting of the minds. Well, there's been a meeting of the minds in that the woman and the doctor agree on the abortion, but there's yeah. not a meeting of the minds in terms of what that procedure entails, the intents behind it, and all of that. Uh, for example, Warren Hearn in his book, which I had right here, I have right here, Warren Hearn's book, Abortion Practice. This is, you have this, this is the medical teaching book yeah. that teaches doctors how to perform dismemberment abortions. He says right here on page 135 that a Doppler should be used to measure fetal heartbeat during the abortion to make sure you, you, you can hear it stop so you know you got a dead kid. But he says that Doppler should be inaudible to the patient. On page 155, he talks about using ultrasound to uh, help with the abortion procedure, but that it should be turned toward the operator, not the woman. Now, in what possible world then can we say that the woman knows what the doctor knows when the doctor who's performing the abortion writes in a procedural manual, make sure she doesn't know what is going on? These are the kinds of things that are hurdles for us, and we're pushing very foolish bills. And the question I love to ask abortion or uh, abolitionists is this. Suppose a bill were put forward that protected all unborn humans from conception. In other words, abortion is banned from conception. But there was a provision that said women would not be prosecuted for murder. Would you let those babies die that could have been saved simply because you can't prosecute the aborting mothers for murder? And they don't like that question. They dodge it or otherwise try to avoid answering it. And I think it's a fair question. What are we out here? Are we out to save the children? That should be what we're doing. Instead, we're getting hung up on a bill that isn't going to help us culturally, isn't going to help us promote pro-life bills. If you're a pro-life politician and you're already taking heat for standing for pro-life, are you going to want to risk your career by pushing a bill that says, hey, we can prosecute women for murder who have abortions? I mean, in what real world is that yeah. going to work? So it's that's never worked. It's I mean, never worked. We look at history and it, um, and I, we had Leah Savas, the co-author yeah. of The Story of Abortion in America, when she came on and she and I talked about this idea, even there was a period where abortion was condemned by the public, morally condemned by the public and illegal. It was against the law. And even yep. under those conditions, it was incredibly difficult to ever successfully prosecute on the issue of abortion. It, is a, exactly. it is a very difficult thing to get. And it's, that's one of the things I think the people who, or at least in my experience, because I, I have seen this group grow. There was a time when, when I worked at LTI with you and we would engage and it felt like there was a small group of people that held this view. Since Dobbs vs. Jackson, that group has grown and I interact with a lot more of them. And it includes now, you know, people like Abby Johnson, who is, who is pushing this point of view as well, who, who said she would never at one point, I think, and has, has completely flipped now and that's said that right. she supports it. 
Um, and so as I was talking to a pastor, a friend of mine and a person who I have had a lot of lovely conversations with, and he has adopted this viewpoint and his position is one of personal virtue in his mind. As I talked to him, he said, I have to, in order to be morally consistent, push for the full prosecution of murder in the case of abortion against a woman. Because if, if not, then I don't believe, that's his view, then I don't believe, or I'm not acting as if I genuinely believe that they're actually human beings being lost. If I don't do this, then I can't possibly call myself fully pro-life. In the same way you mentioned from the left, if you don't adopt every child that you can, if you're in a foster parent, if you're not out there doing all of the, if you're not fighting the death penalty, yeah. And this whole list of things, if you're not doing all of that, then you're not morally pure in this fight. You're seeing the same charge from there. And as I talked to him about what I just mentioned there with just to start as the beginning of our conversation was you have to look at history. Anytime somebody says they want to do X, my question is when has X ever been done? That doesn't yeah. mean it can't be done. That just means that we have to recognize that doing it then will be something no one has ever done and will be immensely difficult to do. And when he starts saying, so when in, in, in history in the United States have we ever successfully prosecuted abortion in the manner that you want? It's never happened. There's never, never been a time where a community was willing to jail women and imprison them for murder. You would never get a jury of their peers. You will never get a grand jury. You will have nope. the legal system actually go the other way. The, the, the history on this is they go the other way. They become right. much, much more uh, allowing on this sort of thing. They, 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 they do not toughen up and prosecute. They just let it go. And, and judicial indifference is a big deal, not just in abortion. I remember reading an article many years ago where it talked about depending on who who's in charge of the attorney general's office in the United States at any given point, lawlessness in particular areas grows if prosecution decreases. So it's not even just a case of saying, if we don't prosecute, if we don't make it illegal, we're not going to be in a virtual vir virtuous. We're not going to be pure. We're not going to be ideologically pure. And by making it illegal, we'll limit it by uh, punishing murder. What we notice is when the attorney general refuses to prosecute, the evil that that is meant to limit actually prospers and grows. Look so at Los Angeles. Look at Chicago. Look at all the blue state big cities where you have DAs unwilling to prosecute violent crime. What's happening in those cities? Yep. And pornography, it happened there. That was the article that I'd written where it was talking about how child pornography prospers when yep. the prosecution of all pornography is limited. So the more you allow it, because you just don't want to get mixed up into that, you don't want to be that intrusive as a government. The attorney general just doesn't have the stomach to make those prosecutions. You're not going to get grand juries. You're not going to get a jury of their peers to prosecute. You're not going to get district attorneys on board with you. And when they're... Go ahead. And there's further complication. Every abortion involves more than a woman. What about the boyfriend that put extreme pressure on her to abort so he can avoid child support payments? Yep. What about parents that, that pressure a daughter to abort? Are we going to prosecute those people for being complicit in the act? Or no, all we want to do, according to the abolitionists, is punish the woman for murder, but all these other people get to walk. You know, they, yep. they talk a lot about we need equal measures and weights. And they cite that scripture as the basis of their view. We got to prosecute women for murder. Well, wouldn't equal justice also mean we prosecute that adult 22-year-old male who pressured a 14-year-old to abort? Uh, yeah. No, they don't talk about that. They only talk about prosecuting the woman. And by the way, it's not inconsistent to say abortion is evil, but the way we're going to apply the law is going to be workable and not yep. silly. 
but a lot of people get hung up that, oh, I have to be personally consistent. No, your job as a pro-lifer is to make sure babies are saved. And you're not being inconsistent to say we're going to outlaw abortion, but the way we apply punishments is going to be consistent with, with what works in the real world we live in. Yeah, and that's the way we prosecute homicide right now across the board. There are different ways to prosecute different levels of homicide. And we we Jay, don't look women who kill their newborns don't always go to prison yeah. or get prosecuted for murder. Absolutely. I'm not it, saying I'm not, not saying, saying that shouldn't. means we justify it. Yeah. But it does mean that, hey, oh wait a minute, uh we have to be prudential in the way we we approach penalties. You can't yep. just say a one size fits all, but that's what's being proposed here. And by prudential, what we mean is we're, you know, we're trying to save as many lives as we possibly can and to find yeah. a legal approach that will work to limit evil as much as possible. As much and as possible. As much as possible. And and that's one of the things that when I was talking to that pastor, when he kept pushing back on me and said, you don't think it's murder. Here, here's the problem. It's not that I disagree with you on the moral nature of abortion, because I you know, was like, pastor, unlike you, I've spent the last 15 years of my life talking about this almost exclusively. This yeah. is all I ever do. Uh, but here's the problem. When you just throw the term murder, you're not thinking through all the different ways that we understand that term and all the different ways that we approach it legally, because I can right. say that I think morally it's murder, but I can also say at the same time that I think the issue of abortion ought to be prosecuted differently than other like premeditated provable murder in front of a jury of their peers. If we cannot get prosecutions of abortionists, if we cannot enforce a law, then the law itself is going to be meaningless. And ultimately, like right. you said, what you're not even going to get that law because right now, clearly, I think everybody who shifted on that, they felt like we had this momentum when Dobbs hit. And they didn't see the, the way the world... I remember one time talking to a philosopher, a moral philosopher, and he said, oftentimes when we're trying to judge the way that the culture is going, we want to see things moving in a linear path. And so that we can look at it and we can say, well, if it's going up, it's going to continue to go up. If, if the pro-life movement's making gains, this is the moment it's going to continue to make gains. So we're going to push harder to get larger gains. And he said, that's just not the way culture responds to things morally. It's an nope. ebb and flow. And they, they yep. react very strongly because they, they don't like something that they see or we're able to get movement. And then they feel the need to resist at that point and push back a little bit. And on, we're in a pushback phase right now. People we are. are we got a, we got a place to where we got uh, Roe v. Wade gone, which was a huge deal for us to move forward. And now we have a group of people who have been made deeply uncomfortable about what that means for their neighbor, and they don't want to force views on their neighbor, and they don't want yeah. an intrusive law, and they don't want the government involved. And that's exactly the narrative. I I've made a cottage industry for about two years there of responding to the New York Times and a Christian Research Journal. And almost yeah. every editorial that they were writing or every article where they were approaching abortion, they were warning of this incredibly intrusive police state that was going to be looking into pregnancies. That's right. And they're going to be looking into miscarriages. And they're going to be investigating every part of this. This is going to be something like uh, Margaret Atwood's book. I mean, we were headed for this world uh, where The Handmaid's Tale is going to be a reality. And no matter how many times you try to reasonably push back and say, that's never been existent. Even Ross Douthat said that in a recent, not recent, yep. back in December, where he said, look, to some degree or another, you have to recognize that what you're searching for is a utopian in nature. The laws, the world that you want has never existed. And so we're going to have to look for what we can get as we sort through the the idea of how we limit the evil of abortion through the law. And you well, can't as Lincoln get caught up put it, that. politics is the art of the possible. Yep. And uh, 
you know, you can wish for a perfect world where everybody abides by biblical law, but unless you're a theonomist, you have a more real picture of what is possible in this world we live in. Yeah. Yeah, and I think uh, I saw a little video with Thomas Sowell recently, and I actually talked to my son and my daughter about it when we were in college, where he talked about the difference between believing that man is good and what we're searching for is a political system that will maximize that goodness, right? That there is a system out there, a political approach yeah. to man that will fix everything. And our goal is to find that because man is good. And ultimately, if we can just marry him with a political system that works, then everything's going to be okay. Versus right. what he saw was a conservative view. And for me, obviously, and you and I as Christians who understand the nature of human beings differently than those who don't believe, we, we understand that man is not good searching for a good political nope. system to marry himself to that man is broken by nature uh, and, and that pursuing evil intentionally rebellious. And, and so Thomas Sowell said in that system, then everything is trade-offs. You have to understand you will never get what you want right. because man will be resistant to good, resistant to, to flourishing, resistant to virtue. Uh, and so I, I loved that idea of, because he got a lot of pushback on that when he said that. And even when I was looking at comments of the replay of it, people being angry about the idea that we can't get this perfect world, that Thomas Sowell in that sense is being negative or cynical. It's like, no, he's not being cynical. He understands the Realist. nature of governing human beings. And yep. in that sense, there will be trade-offs. We will never get what we want this side of heaven. That's just not how the real world works. Nope. And especially right now, I mean, think about it, Jay, in Montana, a red state. Yeah. We couldn't even get voters to approve protections for children who survive abortion procedures. I mean, in what possible world are we going to move from that reality to we're going to get people to jump on board prosecuting women for murder here in Georgia with an Equal Protection Act? You got to be kidding me. No, and 15 years ago, even 10 years ago, the other side hid the abortion issue during elections. They're running on it now. And they're, and they're winning. winning. Yep. Yeah. And winning in places where they used to hide from it. In Georgia, they would never mention abortion 10 years ago. Now they're yep. winning elections on abortion. Now they're defeating candidates on abortion. And it's just not, as you say, being prudential and recognizing we have to save what lives we can save. We have to That's find correct. a way to govern that will limit evil. We, and limit it as much as we possibly can today. Not ideally what That's we right. can do 10 years in the future, but today, That's what we can right. get done today. That is not compromise. That is getting done what we can to. You and I talked about this years ago, and I actually wrote a piece on it on the LTI blog where I talked about, we discussed when we make gains in a world that is completely and utterly committed to the principle of this human autonomy to the point that they're allowed to kill other human beings. When we make gains and take back territory, when we when we make the world more affirming of the value of human life, we're not compromising. We're winning one we're inch, gaining. one foot at a time. We're gaining ground. Yeah, we gained a lot of ground last year. We did, and of course, the other side, the abolitionists say, "Well, we shouldn't, uh, you know, compromise by settling for the lesser of two evils." We're not settling for the lesser of two evils, yeah. Jay. We're lessening evil, as our good friend Kevin Bywater points out. We are working to lessen evil, and that's always a win for us, not a defeat, not a compromise. And actively working. That's one of the things that I found that, and I've tried my hardest and face-to-face. -face, I don't engage people online, but face-to-face, -face, when I've had opportunity to talk to people who disagree with me on this issue, one of the things I've tried to help encourage them is nobody is talking about stopping the fight when we reach some compromised position. 
That's what we're right. Doing, it's like an island hopping campaign in World War II. We move, we're always coming back for more. That's right. We take ground and then we, we move to the next target and we keep moving. And on. by the way, our opponents know we're going to do this, which is why they get hysterical when even a modest bill yep. passes. Yeah. They know our plan or what our plan should be better than some of our people do, sadly. Yeah. But as one writer calls this, it's smash mouth incrementalism. We're not going away. We're going to keep coming back. We're not giving up until all children are protected. But it's not compromised to save those you can while you work for the principle of saving all. And it just so happens to be the way that every major human rights movement in history has been accomplished. Nobody ever yep. got everything they wanted day one. Everybody had nope. to keep working and pushing forward and getting to it. Now, there could be people you could say like William Lloyd Garrison. You could point to him and say, well, he stayed ideologically pure. Although, I, you know, you would argue Frederick Douglass didn't believe so. And Frederick Douglass, who yep. said that in his response to William Lloyd Garrison's uh, insults to him for how he procured his freedom, as far as having someone buy his freedom for him so that he could no longer be a slave, Frederick Douglass's response that it's, it's easy for William Lloyd Garrison to take that position. I just wanted to be free. Right. Yeah. I, I, it wasn't, it didn't matter to me how I got here. I just wanted to be free. So for the free man to point out that I wasn't ideologically pure in the pursuit of my freedom, that's a luxury I didn't have. I just didn't want yes, to be a exactly slave anymore. Right. And by the way, speaking of Douglas, he used to critique Lincoln for not going far enough and working too incrementally. But at Lincoln's funeral, he made the point that the president had been right, that his wisdom and prudence had actually been the moral path to take, and it would have been immoral to go the other way. So even an abolitionist like Douglas came around to see yep. that Lincoln's prudence saved the republic and freed the slaves. Yeah, and there's a great book by Oakes about that. I think The Radical and the Republican, where it talks about Frederick Douglass's relationship. And I think they met three times where Frederick yep. Douglass was trying to determine whether or not Lincoln was a racist. I mean, he was intentionally right. trying to determine this man's heart and walked away from it all, as you said, the entire differently approach to him, that he he was Lincoln's biggest hero, or Lincoln was his biggest hero after the fact, after Lincoln's assassination. Yep. And he propped, and, and earlier he had called him a, what a, a first-rate, second-rate man uh, was his, yeah. his, his, his evaluation was of him prior to that. Yeah. yeah, yeah, he was rough on him. It's, it, but the recognition that this is how we're going to get where we want to get to is by taking ground every chance that we can and then holding on to it. And if you've ever played, I mean, going to a trivial form of it, if you've ever played Risk, you understand how this works. You take a little bit of ground and then you hold it. And then you take a little bit more and you hold it. And being yeah. able to hold it is a big part of taking it. And that's one of the biggest problems of, of political overshooting your cover, like when you overkick your coverage in politics, you go yep. too far, too fast, and you can't hold it. And, and nope. the pushback comes hard and you lose it. And so that's where I think that idea of seeing it as compromise comes from people who believe that once you've attained a certain mark, then you're going to relax. I'm not going to relax, right? Nope. I, you and I have talked about this for years. I am, we are committed to the idea that every human being ought to be treated with dignity and respect. That's right. And even if we won an abortion, it still wouldn't be the end of that fight. We still live in a culture that is largely corrosive to that value. And there's other areas where it has to be addressed. But this well, is here's the most the thing. urgent. Even, even if we abolished abortion today, yeah. uh, we still have the evil of discarded IVF embryos. We still have the evil of other embryos treated as commodities through assisted reproductive technologies. I mean, was it wrong to ban slavery, even though segregation continued for another hundred years? And the answer is no, it was not wrong to take that incremental step of banning slavery, even though African-Americans didn't get full participatory rights in our culture yep. until almost a hundred years later. 
born Wilberforce and Clarkson and that movement defeated the slave trade before they freed slaves. Like the yeah, first thing was that's you interesting because not... abolitionists say, oh, uh, Wilberforce was not an incrementalist on the slave trade. The slave trade bill itself was an incremental step. And, yeah. you know, let's let's be real here. So uh, anyway, prudence does not equal compromise. There can be morally sufficient reasons for saying we shouldn't prosecute women for murder. And those reasons need to be answered, not dismissed as, oh, you're just providing cover for people who are murderers and you just want to profit from abortion. Jay, you and I are good enough public speakers that if we wanted to get rich, abortion would be the last topic yeah. we would take up. We could go do self-help seminars and yeah. together make millions but we've chosen not to because we care about this issue. But you know what? When you don't have a good argument, you pound the table. And I guess that's what's been going on here. I had a guy in a plane to DC one time when he and I were chatting about what I did for a living. And he said, so you're like, a, you sell God. And I was like, well, if I do, I'm not a very good one because I don't make that much money. I, I, I'm yeah. trying to convince people of a, a moral position and you would be surprised how how poorly that pays. <laughs> but It does not pay well at all. We speak to not, audiences that are broke to organizations yep. that are broke, to students who are broke, and then we take flack for wanting to get rich. Yeah, will you come for free? And if I can, I will, right? It, yeah. It's, uh, the, the message matters more to me. And well, the, the uh, idea Although I will say I appreciate the 100 million you're paying me for showing up on your podcast. Yeah, well, this is a first class podcast. We don't mess around. Yeah, there you right? go. I, like, so, I can't get guess the caliber I'm getting if I don't shell out the money. Yeah, that's exactly <laughs> right that's as good a place to stop as any, I guess. So we're going to take a break here. And this has been episode nine of Human Things 2.0 podcast. Join us for episode 10, where we will finish our conversation with Scott Klusendorf of Life Training Institute and his three things that he wants to cover. Again, if you're enjoying the material, please go to merelyhumanministries.org. All of these podcasts of the episodes that we've produced already are going to be there. And feel free to donate to the cause to help us to keep producing more of these. Also subscribe below uh, to our YouTube account. Listen on SoundCloud. You listen on Apple Podcasts. Thank you for joining us and we look forward to seeing you on episode 10.